Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, a podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to talk about Europe after the Polish elections. After a nail-biting campaign, it appears that Poland's liberal opposition has won enough, enough votes to unseat the country's populist PIS government, which has been in power for eight years. Donald Tusk, the leader of the main opposition party and former president of the European Council, could now become prime minister, though it's not entirely clear if he will, but he has already declared victory. And what we're going to do in this election is look beyond the procedural wranglings of the next few weeks to think about what one might expect from a government change in Poland. What could that mean both for Poland, but more importantly, what would Poland's return to the EU centrist fold mean for its relations for its neighbours and Brussels? But more importantly, what it means for the bloc as a whole as it struggles with questions around migration, war, enlargement. And all of this while we're heading into a European election year. And to make sense of all of these things, we have yet again an all-star cast returning to the podcast. Joining us down the line from Warsaw, we have Piotr Buras, who's the head of ECFR's Warsaw office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And sitting here with me in Berlin is Jana Pulirin, who's also a senior policy fellow and the head of our office in Berlin. So, Piotr, you have been following all the ins and outs of this campaign like few others, um, and uh, we've talked about it often on the podcast before, but now that it's over, maybe you can just tell us very quickly uh, what happens next um, in Poland, and then we can sort of move on to some of the wider significance for, for Europe. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And, and let me uh, say at the very beginning that it's a great relief to be able to say something positive about my country uh, after eight years after I had to deliver lots of downbeat uh, reports from from Warsaw and I think it's really a, a massive change which uh, is um, ahead of us but in terms of the uh, the, the next steps uh, the absolute majority for the op- opposition is is clear and certain nothing will will change uh, so um, we will see um, a, a government run probably by Donald Tusk, but it's not certain yet, Um, most probably this year, but not very soon, because it's still the president uh, of Poland uh, plays central role in the government formation procedure. He will probably wait until mid-November with convening the new parliament, and then um, uh, he will most probably ask a representative of the PIS, of the party who's still the strongest party in the parliament, but it cannot form a government, it cannot form a coalition, but he will ask most probably current Prime Minister Morawiecki to make this attempt. And that will let the PIS stay in power for a bit longer, but it will not prevent the uh, democratic three democratic uh, parties to form a coalition and government at a later stage, probably in uh, mid-December, because uh, this is the the procedure which we have in Poland, that after one attempt to um, form the government has failed, the parliament takes the initiative, and uh, once the parliament has taken the initiative, the Democrats will form the government. So 
uh, we can have um, the new government under the Christmas tree? So um, I was in, I've been in Berlin talking to various people in the government and experts here, and they're a bit kind of confused and sort of nervous about some of the procedural things. I heard something about how um, if the government doesn't pass a budget by a certain time that you then have to have automatically have a new elections. Is that a possible uh, way that they could avoid having a change of government? Um, no, because I think it's it, there's no risk of that because, you know, there is an absolute majority in the parliament which will pass the, the budget law until the end of the year. And then there is no risk that... that uh, the president would dissolve the parliament. Okay. But what we're talking about is a slightly messy process um, between now and Christmas. It's not entirely clear how the roles will get distributed within the coalition. There's kind of speculation that that Tusk might not become prime minister, might become speaker of parliament, that uh, the mayor of Warsaw, Chaskowski, might become um, uh, prime minister. Uh, there are various different scenarios that we will discovered when when I was with you in Warsaw recently and there was all this sort of speculation about it but it seems pretty likely that there will be a European orientated government empowered by the the beginning of next year so Jana what does what does that mean for the future of Europe Mm, let me start with the future of the bilateral relationship Germany and Poland because I think the biggest sigh of relief was actually uh heard in in Berlin Um, because people here had mentally prepared for another um, victory of the PIS and this um, kind of result now opens the door to finally um, make progress in the the, uh, German-Polish relationship. Again, um, I think a lot of people here have been waiting to be again able to work constructively with Poland. Poland is uh, a very important country, very important neighbor for Germany. And although I think it will remain complicated and there will be obstacles and it will not be easy, um, it is first and foremost an election that unblocks the, fr- the, the, the relationship between Germany and Berlin and therewith also opens the door for, I think, a more constructive um, working together on the EU level, working together um, with Central and Eastern Europe uh, more broadly. So I see this as a huge opportunity that should not be missed. So Piotr, one of the geniuses of the peace campaign is that they tried to turn um, the greatest strength that Tusk had into his biggest weaknesses. So, you know, he had this extraordinary um, stature as a European figure, having been president of the council. He promised to unlock billions of um, of euros um, from the from the recovery funds for for Poland, um, and um, you know this should have been a massive uh, bonus with him, and I think it was obviously with some people in Poland. But they tried to turn it into weakness by presenting him as a as a German agent, and uh, you know making making allegations about him not being patriotic enough. And it was, I think, quite effective in neutralizing the European issue from the campaign. Certainly when we were uh, meeting together, it wasn't one of the kind of central plays of the of the opposition campaign. To what extent is he going to carry on being constrained? I mean, does he have to prove that he's not a German agent by having a big fight with the Germans early on and, and being tougher in Brussels than, than he would have otherwise been? Or can he kind of go straight into a, a big reset of relations? 
You know, I think the, the main risk and the main problem, not just for Tusk, but, but for, for Poland in general, in the upcoming months and years, will be the fact that uh, the, this European debate and foreign policy debate in Poland will look completely differently than it, than it did before 2015, when, when Tusk was the prime minister. I would expect a, a massive polarization in Poland uh, along the pro-European, anti-European lines, and I think this 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 is something which we didn't have, didn't experience in the past. And if you look at the uh, not just at the campaign, because of course that was the instrumentalization of of this anti-German uh, sentiments and, and and attempts to portray Tusk as, as a German and Russian agent, that was quite outrageous, and it was uh, rejected by the majority of of the uh, of the Polish of the Polish people. But if you look at the at the current debate, really after the election, after the first reactions of the PIS politicians, they portray the situation today as a choice between sovereign and not sovereign Poland. So basically they say once Tusk comes to power, once the new government is in place, we at, what is at risk is not just Poland's sovereignty, but Poland's independence. And, and this is all in relation to the in relation to the um, unfolding EU reform debate, uh, potential you know EU treaty reforms, and 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 we will have a pro-European government, very obviously, and an opposition consisting of a um, uh, Eurosceptic uh, and increasingly anti-EU right-wing party PIS and the far right, and and the competition between them. Uh, which of those parties is more vigorously defending Poland's sovereignty and, and Polish interest? So I think this this political constellation in Poland will be very, uh, very difficult. And I, I think that will be a constraint if, if, for, for Tusk. I, I'm not saying that he will, uh, you know, tailor his foreign and foreign and European policy to uh, to the expectations of the of the of the right wing opposition, but rather uh, he will have to uh, think how to um, you know define the uh, the priorities and strategies um, in a way that would address somehow this this completely new new political setup. And I, I think that's uh, that's something uh, which which needs to be taken into account. Um, and uh, but but maybe when when we are talking about constraints for foreign policy, I think we we should be also quite clear that the absolute focus of the new government will be on domestic issues, which will c- consume a lot of time and a lot of energy. This this restoration of rule of law and destruction or or, or reversal of this illiberal PIS system will will be very difficult and will take a lot of time. So I think Poland will be also very much self-focused in, in the upcoming years. And so we shouldn't be too uh, optimistic uh, uh, about uh, the return of Poland as a uh, you know new engine of Europe in the in the in the next twelve months, because uh, there will be no space for that. But um, Piotr, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we should also limit our expectations when it comes to to substance. For example, on migration, I think um, the new government will, when it comes to its positions, be also um, 
kind of quite skeptical um, when it comes to, um, I don't know, distribution of migrants and all this. Maybe compared to 2015, the changes that uh, all of Europe has basically shifted to the right. Um, but also when it comes to topics such as climate, um, I think there, there will remain um, obstacles. So Poland um, will not change all its positions um, dramatically, I think. But what And also kind of when it comes to, to Germany, I think many issues will remain also when it comes to, for example, nuclear energy, uh, infrastructure projects. So, but where I see the big difference is that... It will be done politely. Yeah, no, and, and it will be a constructive, <laughs> I think it will be a, a more constructive government in the sense that they want to find uh, a solution on the European level, but it will not be um, easy. So we should not fool ourselves and expect that overnight, um, kind of content-wise, everything is different. So what do you think the main changes on content will be, Piotr? Because you've been talking to, I mean, the, you know a lot of the people who are going to be influential on Polish-European policy. Um, obviously, one of the number one goals of a, a new government is going to be to unlock the 35 billion euros of next generation Europe funds, which ha has implications for the rule of law questions that you were talking about. But apart from that, what what sorts of ideas do you think a Polish government is going to bring to the table? I think it's it's really difficult at this stage to predict that. I mean, when it comes to concrete ideas, I think uh, because... Uh, if you, you know, the party or the, the parties uh, which will form the government were eight years in the opposition uh, under extremely difficult uh, circumstances. And they, the main focus of their also programmatic work in the past was on how to regain power and how to restore the rule of law. And, and how to, and so the foreign policy, European policy was certainly not, uh, you know, the, um, an area where the, the party in the opposition would, would develop uh, far-reaching plans and especially because the, the context was constantly changing and, and we are in a completely different place now than we was like three five years ago so so the the, the party uh, i think is current opposition the future coalition will certainly change the overall approach to our relations with the EU and we are our main partners. And this is important because I think the PIS uh, on many issues were not looking for solutions. For example, my, Jana mentioned migration and the main difference will be that I think the, the, the Polish government will be more interested at the, in the European level solutions to the problems like migration, I think, uh, is a very good example because the, the European populists basically don't want to have solutions. Uh, they, they want to exploit uh, the issue of um, migration uh, for domestic political purposes. So I would, um, I think, you know, the fact that, that the Polish government will probably also reject the idea of um, uh, some ideas maybe, not, not reject, but... Uh, criticized would be skeptical about the migration pact it's not not such a big deal because i think migration pact is, is not very efficient anyway so 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 i need to to look. it'll be seen i mean yana can correct me but i think it would be a really big deal in german politics if the migration pact ends up being blocked at the end of the The, the kind of trilateral procedure. No, but, but there is no reason, you know, th there is no reason to, to block the migration pact, you know, the, the, because, yeah. and I don't think the Polish government will block the migration pact because there is there is nothing wrong about the migration pact uh, 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 in domestic 
you know, in domestic political context, uh, apart from the fact that that uh, opposing it was serving the PIS interests. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think the migration practice is, can be uh, embraced by the Polish government, and not much will change for Poland. Uh, uh, the, the 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 real problem is that the migration pact doesn't solve any of the uh, problems Europe is facing um, when it comes to the, yeah. the control of irregular migration. Yeah. I think that's true. I think what it, it's more a political symbol. Yeah. So you try and turn Europe into part of the solution. Exactly. So so then there is, okay, we, we can accept the, uh, the Polish government can accept the migration pact and then we will still face the same problems with irregular yeah. migration as we did in the past. So, so I would expect the Polish government to engage, for example, in a, in a constructive conversation with the, with the German government and other governments uh, how to really solve the problem <laughs> or how to how to how to you know engage in in uh, meaningful conversations with with third countries uh, how to i don't know work on an efficient uh, readmission uh, and so on and so forth so so that's the uh, that's the way that's, and, that's and, portfolio number one migration then like, maybe you should just go for a few of these things ukraine's obviously a big deal and with trump on the horizon as well. I think it takes on a kind of different urgency um, in that year. You know, if the new government starts uh, under the Christmas tree. There's <laughs> basically um, a year to prepare for, for, for um, a possible uh, Trump return. What do you think? And do you think it will just be continuity on Ukraine or do you think you'll have a different position? I mean, on the agricultural questions, um, I think problems will remain. On the grain deal. On the grain deal. Yeah, yeah but, but also looking uh, further at enlargement and beyond the grain deal. I mean, this whole question um, of how to deal with Ukraine as an EU member and what that means for Poland. I mean, there are still significant questions that haven't gone away overnight just because of the election um, results. So I think the new um, Polish government will make sure that kind of Polish interests are taken into account. But again, I hope to see a more constructive approach. And also when it comes to uh, the, the overall narrative, I mean, the, the, the speeches that we've seen during the election campaign at the very end, kind of no weapons for Ukraine and, and also this very hostile tone, I hope that will change and Poland will go back to where it started um, and, and, and be a supporter of um, kind of EU membership for Ukraine and in, in the long term and for um, also sustaining the efforts to support Ukraine um, in this war and to, to supply it with weapons. But I think the truth is that Poland has pretty much also run out of things it can basically deliver to Ukraine. That is and that is a problem that the, the new government cannot change overnight as well. Yeah, I, I think, you know, on, on Ukraine, of course, the main line will not change. I mean, the, there will be um, certainly uh, a continuous effort to, to support Ukraine uh, politically and militarily when it comes to its, uh, you know, conflict with, with Russia. And, um, and that's, uh, this is a part of, of Poland's uh, raison d'etat and, and it, it's, uh, it, it will not, it will not change. But of course, you know the problems are now 
uh, there are many more problems, and, and Mariana mentioned some of them, and, and the situation is different than at the beginning of the war, because we are talking about the uh, Ukraine's integration with the EU. We are talking about the EU reform in relation to, to enlargement, and, um, and this is a, a, a debate in which Poland has been quite silent so far, and, uh, and actually uh, very negative when it comes to any uh, potential institutional adaptations discussed in the European debate, and and I, and I think you know there there is no no way Poland could stay away from from this debate, and and I think do you think do you've been you're up to your eyeballs in the enlargement debate? You've been talking to all the different member states and thinking a lot about what, how that kind of moves on. How do you th- a um, you know how do you see that kind of uh, moving forward over the next period of time? And where does Poland fit into that? Because when we were together in Warsaw, you know, it was very clear there's a kind of deep ambivalence about it. On the one hand, Poland is more committed to um, Ukraine being part of the West and being given a kind of security anchor than, than anybody else, or at least as committed as anybody else, but at the same time, much more fearful of Ukraine in the European Union than anyone else, because its uh, economy poses such a big uh, challenge to the Polish economy. Poland doesn't want to go from being a net recipient to a net contributor. Um, there are all sorts of other kind of, uh, you know, very strong reasons why Ukrainian membership is a is a is a kind of threat to it. So I got the impression that that Poland w- could potentially be, in a way, the trickiest member state of all when it comes to actually getting into the EU, even though. Um, its support for Ukraine not being kind of hung out in a in a kind of sufficient lump between Europe and Russia is 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 absolutely yeah. I think this is one of the main challenges for the new government to define our approach to this uh, to the to the prospect of Ukraine's EU integration because on on at the level of declaration and support for Ukraine's candidate status. It's obvious, you know, and that was the easy part. Now that this is the the more difficult part, is to say, okay, so how do we go, for example, about the EU budget? Uh, do we want to increase the EU budget? Uh, if yes, then how? Do we want to increase national contributions? Do we want to? Uh, have new own resources of the European Union? Do we want to have uh, new debt uh, and at the EU level? All that, any of these decisions or, or options uh, entails some far-reaching consequences for the whole EU integration process. And I think there is no, uh, at the moment, I don't have, um, with regard to this very important question, I don't know the answer. I, I, I don't think there is any position um, in Poland, but it will need to be uh, defined. The same is true uh, for the institutional reforms. I think you know uh, there is no way we can um, uh, agree on enlargement uh, uh, in the European Union if we don't. Uh, if if some uh, EU member states have more assurances that, for example, the rule of law problem is can be solved somehow at the, at the EU level. So there will be no, uh, and, and so and that requires some um, some institutional adaptations. The same is true for the for the decision making process. I mean, for some countries, it is really important. So I think more flexibility on the Polish side will be required to, uh, if we want to uh, meaningfully you know, contribute to this debate and make um, progress in, in enlargement possible, 
but but I think this the, the a concrete position uh, has not been yet defined. And what I want to end with Jana telling us what this means for the kind of leadership of Europe, because we've seen a sort of tricky <laughs> period with the Franco-German relationship, and a lot of people talk about kind of leadership vacuum. Von der Leyen's kind of taken up some room o- on that. Um, so maybe you can take us into the, into that. I mean, um, going beyond the substance of which does seem tricky on most of the portfolios as we found. Um, do you think this will change the way that that will Europe now be able to have a kind of leadership group, the Weimar Triangle? I very much hope so, but I still think it remains complicated, not only due to differences between Germany and Poland, but also, at least uh, as much because of differences between Germany and France. But I think, um, so if you take Chancellor Scholz's words and how he thinks about leadership, um, he always talks about Zusammenführen, which in German has a double meaning, which means basically leading together and bringing different people, together. Yeah, people or parts together. Yeah. And I think here, um, finally, there is an opportunity for this uh, German government in Europe to bring um, France and Poland together and with Germany and to basically lead together. So he could give some flesh to, to, to his concept. But I think like my, my pledge to the German government here would be coming back to your, I think, very first or second question about Tusk and being a German agent. I think we should not expect Poland now to basically, I don't know, come to Germany and say everything that was said in the election campaign was, of course, completely wrong. I understand that you, you were heavily insulted and um, that was all unfair and I apologize, but I, I think that, that it should be kind of the opposite. I think Germany should be very constructive, reach out to the new Polish government with concrete ideas, uh, what one can do together on the European level with kind of modest expectations. Like what? What should they offer them? No, I, I think, for example, on security, um, I think um, for for a long time, um, German concept of European security was considered to be a threat to Poland. And I think now with the Zeitenwende, there is a perfect link um, and also an opportunity to show for this government that um, the security of Poland and the Baltic states is the core interest of Germany. And with this whole, the United States um, are going to focus more on Asia and Russia is going to remain a threat. So thing. you came up with your leopard panel. Do you know what it, could, it could be what a leopard uh, tank um, uh, hub in Poland or something like that. Uh, yeah, but... Talking about hubs, I yes. actually am quite hopeful because um, with the previous or with the kind of peace uh, the, the Polish government, there, there was an issue with repair hubs. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, both countries couldn't come to terms. Um, and I think now with the elections in Slovakia not going uh, exactly in a, a Ukraine friendly position, I think there is actually a need for constructive uh, German-Polish cooperation. So we could have a repair hub. What else could be as no, part of your? Uh, what other offers could the German government make? <laughs> I I think um, in 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 a in a context of NATO and um, the whole idea of um, yeah restructuring NATO um, of uh, forward defense, I think Germany has an important role to play and has already committed to this rhetorically and has said all the right words and now needs to follow through. And from a Polish perspective, one of the interesting things about um, the war in Ukraine is that 
it's changed the dynamics in a kind of unhelpful way for Poland because, you know, the <clears throat> the refugee crisis was great in that it split Europe between East and West. So Poland could be one of the leaders of the Eastern Bloc. But the Ukraine crisis has actually not split Europe between East and West, but rather split Eastern Europe. <laughs> and with the elections in Slovakia, the the kind of V4 are even more split than they were before with, with Orban and Fico on one side. Um, so does that mean that the kind of Weimar format and moving West is, is more appealing to, to Poland? What kind of hopes might Poland have to, to return to the kind of core of, of Europe as one of the leading countries in that core? You know, I think we probably need to be more flexible in thinking uh, about all these formats and the future of cooperation within the European Union. And we, we stick somehow to this Weimar Triangle as if it was the only solution to all, you know, European problems. I think it's not. And I would I would think that you know, we, if we if we talk about a kind of a reshuffling, reorganization of this po- political map in Europe, I would see Poland, for example, in a closer cooperation with the Baltic and the Nordic countries, with with Sweden, Finland, with with uh, which share a lot of uh, views of uh, and interest of of Poland on security. Now you know, becoming members of NATO, uh, on Russia. On EU reform as well, you know, deeper skepticism about, you know, very profound institutional reforms as advocated by sometimes by France or, or, or Germany, also on, on EU economy and single market and so on. So, and I think that that could be very useful also for Germany in a way to have, you know, Poland as a, I don't know if a leader, perhaps not a leader, but a, but a, a powerful player in in uh, in eastern northeastern europe a country which is able to kind of aggregate interests of uh, of these countries and represent them also towards towards germany so i think that could could change perhaps somehow the dynamics not only of the polish german conversation but also the conversation in Europe at all, in general, and and so so not Weimar Triangle, not Visegrad Group, but maybe more of a kind of a Nordic Baltic Poland. Yeah, yeah, that was. <clears throat> I remember when Radek Sikorski was foreign minister. That was kind of part of his goal was reinventing Poland yeah, as a kind of Nordic forget, Baltic country. I mean, don't forget the Czech Republic still also. Yes, the Czech Republic is could be also part of. Wants to be a Nordic Baltic country. No, but it also wants to be. Who wouldn't want to be a Nordic Baltic country? I'd love to be a Nordic Baltic. Hans Magnus Enzensberger wrote once a, a book uh, under the title "Czechia at Sea." Okay. Listen, I think it's been a great discussion. Um, it's obviously, I think, an important election, not least because of the counterfactual. If um, the Law and Justice Party had won again, I think we would see a much more contentious and fractious um, EU um, uh, going forward. Um, we've already a bit over time, but we haven't talked about the European elections. I don't know if either of you want to say anything about what this might mean for what happens in the European elections. I think I have more of a question than than a comment, but uh, it is interesting. It will be interesting to look how the defeat of the uh, PIS will affect the strategies pursued by by the far right parties and right wing parties, ECR, Meloni, especially. You know how this will affect her interest in um, cooperating closer maybe with the EPP or or maybe not. I, I think this is for me is still an open question, but one which is probably worth being investigated in a 
in the next episode of of your podcast, Mark. And I don't know if the effect lasts that long, but um, I mean, the election in Poland is a remarkable example uh, of a country where kind of the election campaign was full of hatred and also, I think, lies and uh, propaganda and where kind of the election was actually not really fair and where kind of the, 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 the liberal forces then prevailed. I think like for me personally, I find it very inspiring. I don't know if, if <laughs> but maybe more people in Europe uh, get, get the idea that kind of the rise of the far right uh, and of ever more radical right-wing parties is inevitable, but you can also kind of, yeah, t turn back <laughs> the clock and, 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 and have other results. Okay. Well, what an inspiring note to end on. Um, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, however, and that is our bookshelf segment. Piotr, what's on your bookshelf? You know, in order to uh, read something not related to Poland, but to uh, rather focus on another very important issue in uh, these days on Israel, I started reading an older book, a very famous book by... Amos Oz, A Tale of Love and Darkness, uh, but didn't manage to go very far. But it's a fantastic. Okay. What about you? So I am reading a novel and uh, it's a German one. So uh, apologies to all the non-German speakers, but it's um, Anne Rabe's Die Möglichkeit von Glück, um, where she basically writes about her childhood uh, in the former DDR and then after the war came down and It's a brutal book. Uh, it's a horrible uh, family story, but it's very um, fascinating. And I think it tells you a lot about um, German society, uh, especially in those years and what this still means for today. Okay. So highly recommended, but not an easy read. And I, my recommendation is not a book, it's more a kind of bit of escapism. I've been traveling, flying around a lot and been very tired. So I started watching this series on Netflix called The Kaiserin, the, ah. the Empress, which is a tale of a different type of European politics where the Habsburg Empire is torn between other countries and having to choose about whether to join the war or not. I, I only watched the first few episodes, but it was, uh, it was quite, quite, uh, quite fun. And, um, and good for anyone who wants to improve their German. So um, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please head to whatever platform you used to download this one from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it helps bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Piotr Buras, Jana Pulierin, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this episode is Anand Sunder, and the editor is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. <laughs>